Good morning. So great to sing how desperate we are for the Holy Spirit. I heard somebody say that one of the differences between God and us is that um, we uh, live our lives as though we don't need God, although we desperately need him. And God, who doesn't need us, uh, acts as though he is desperate for fellowship with us. Uh, that's how good our God is. And we're in this little series, this is the two-parter, so this is the conclusion of it, about um, forming a tov culture, the Hebrew word for good. In the beginning, God created and he saw it was good. Uh, and that's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that's Revelation 21 and 22. But apart from those four chapters of the Bible, <laughs> we messed it up. Uh, and we've got to deal with the fact of our own hearts of the world that we live in, how our own hearts recruit us to a narrative that is unhealthy and not the narrative God has. But the good news is, if you're in Jesus Christ, uh, though you live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, <laughs> uh, through John 3.16, that if you believe in, in the one God gave, you have not only eternal life, but you have the ability to live out this new narrative uh, and you and I are on a Revelation 21-22 trajectory to the new heavens where all of this is cleared away. And the way that we get there, uh, this book kind of has two sections in it. The first is facing and excavating the wrong and the pollution in our lives and in our histories, not skirting over, not skating over them. We need to face it so that we're humbled by it and we're hungry for the new and we get healed where we need to be healed. And that's a part of our process that we don't want ever to stop. We don't want to just power through hard experiences and not have the conversations. So that's half of the book. Uh, but then I have to say for, I think, all of us who've been reading this book among our elders and staff, our favorite part is the second half about how you build what's good uh, and how it takes all of us uh, in a continual uh, riveting of our attention to the new narrative of what God is doing. Uh, and so um, we're going to look this morning at leadership as we ordain uh, a new class of elders, as we appreciate and honor the elders who have served us so well in these last three years. Um, the reality is this. There is no good culture that doesn't start with leaders. That means the buck stops with leaders, starts with leaders, uh, but that also leadership also must invite everybody into new patterns of health. So we're gonna look at leadership uh, as Jesus defines it. And I'm struck by this conversation with his disciples occurs near the end of their three-year internship <laughs> with Jesus. Just uh, note that because it's not the prettiest conversation uh, that uh, disciples might have with Jesus. In fact, uh, if I had been the teacher after these three years, I think like I would be ready to go home and just kind of say, has my whole three years been a complete and utter failure? <laughs> Uh, because of the conversation with two who were um, in Jesus' inner circle, even. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, of uh, the agenda of healthy leadership that Jesus brings. So uh, if you're like me, you'll relate well to uh, some that is awry in this uh, and in the initial question. So um, here now, the word of God, I'm going to read it. Uh, just straight for you, and I want to just remind you every week that uh, the only 100% accurate thing that you will ever hear from me is when I'm just reading scripture. <laughs> That's the most important thing we do as a church, and uh, I can't wait till next week, by the way, I can't wait because we're going to start going through Ephesians, passage by passage by passage, just walk through and let the Bible set the agenda, so no more pastor picks his favorite passage and preaches that, <laughs> we're going to go right through this great book of Ephesians, but hear now the word the infallible, inspired word of our God, Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. <laughs> they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. <laughs> Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. <laughs> Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. 
When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Our great God, even in this passage, we see Jesus' patience, graciousness, and kindness with those that are slow to understand and perceive what he came to do and how he came to change the focus and narrative of our lives. Oh Lord, we come to you confident you yet have that same nature of kindness and graciousness for those who can be so clueless. And we pray, Lord, for the illumination, yes, Lord, the enlightening of the eyes of our heart that we might understand the riches of the glory of the calling to be near you, to be your servant, and to spend and be spent in the things that truly will matter a hundred years from now, a million years from now. We pray, Lord, for ourselves, we pray for our church, that we would have the narrative of a people, of a body that is truly being led by Christ as Lord. We pray, Lord, that you truly would have the sway over all aspects of Christian Life Center family. We mourn, Lord, that it requires continual maintenance on our own part to humble ourselves, to seek your face, to pray, to not do what comes naturally, but to do what comes spiritually, to surrender ourselves, to lean into sometimes the awkward moments, to let you have access to all the nooks and crannies and corners of our lives, to believe, Lord, that when we do this, you are not coming to punish us or shame us, but you are coming rather to completely eradicate the causes of shame and the things that would make us hide. And so, Lord, we do, as we've sung, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Holy Spirit, we would cause anything contrary to your influence and your mind, Lord, to be completely intercepted by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I once heard somebody say, and I think it's true, the difference between God and me is that God never thinks he's me. <laughs> Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? Um, I've been reading this book when narcissism comes to church. And that's kind of one of its themes. <laughs> that um, we are not safe really to lead or influence anyone else until we come to understand that we have got to continually um, expel our inner narcissist. And what we find in this passage is very much in line with what I read in this book, um, that um, after being in the inner circle, after Jesus, you know, Jesus would take Peter, James, and John to see like the things that the other disciples weren't ready for, like when he raised a little girl or when he was transfigured on the mountain. So these, this is Jesus' A team after three years. And this occurs after Jesus has given his most clear uh, annunciation of the fact that he is gonna be rejected by the peoples and the scribes and the Pharisees and he is gonna be crucified on the cross. And their request is, and this, obviously this has been bubbling up uh, um, among themselves in private, but they finally come out and they, they say it, and you can see in verse 35, their agenda is, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. <laughs> This, is, this really exposes our human heart, that when Jesus recruits us to serve him, there are many people who are willing to be co-stars, but there are very few servants. 
this, this is an occupational hazard, actually, as uh, Chuck DeGroote in this book, When Narcissism Comes to Church. He, he um, reveals some psychological scientific studies from psychobiology that says um, the more success or the more um, the crowds swell for a pastor or a Christian leader of any kind, there is a sinister, a sinister thing that happens psychobiologically is that the part of the brain that feeds our capacity for empathy to the powerless, empathy to the people who are anonymous, empathy to the people who are marginalized, that part of the brain actually recedes in its ability to produce empathetic feelings. Now that is frightening. Um, and maybe this was happening to Peter, James, and John. Maybe that's part of what was happening to them as they were experiencing the warmth of Jesus. It was so easy for them to transfer that into something that became uh, really rather sinister. But uh, Jesus' response is, again, and this is often our thing, we, we put ourselves in that role, in that co-star role. Um, we wouldn't say the starring role, we'd say, Jesus, you be the star, but um, I just wanna be right next to you as a co-star. And Jesus Christ is the only, the only one who has come and lived a life of perfect deflection of everything he did was for God. In fact, uh, in John 5, Jesus, and this is an amazing statement, he says, uh, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father wants me to say. <clears throat> we need to bring that kind of dependence into our lives. I have lived enough around church that I have often seen that we can so easily do religious activities, church activities, things that look good that are driven entirely by uh, our own flesh, our own human agenda. And we can even stop losing any kind of sensitivity or fear to the fact that Jesus doesn't have the control room. I I'm struck by the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. He writes, you know, prophetic letters to them through the Apostle John. You could say that he really was only central in command in, in one, maybe two of those seven churches. And so the question to us is, is, as we seek to lead, is Jesus really in control? And here's the example of Jesus. The totality of Jesus' life was confined to one narrow compartment of being a servant. That's what he says at the end of this dialogue. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He is even prefigured in Isaiah as the suffering servant. It's picked up by Paul, who in every one of his letters, except one where there was like an intervention trouble, the Galatian letter, he begins by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. But Jesus, I want you just to think about this, like Jesus, the Son of God, uh, the fullness of deity was pleased to take up residence in Jesus. He is uniquely the Son of God, supremely the Son of God. We've never been visited, this planet's never been visited by God the way he came in Jesus, right? And this defines his entire coming. He is the servant of God. He would not turn stones to bread for his own glory. Uh, he, he would not leap off the temple pinnacle for just his own show. He never did a miracle in his own service. He never exercised his power for anything other than glorifying his father. There, there's a lot of talk about power dynamics, right? And at the end of the gospels, Jesus says, all authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's interesting, he says, uh, before he sends out the disciples, he says, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me, and he says, then go. And, and the right way to understand that phrase, and Diane Langberg's book, Redeeming Power, so helpful, is he says, Jesus doesn't give his power away, he retains it. He's holding on to his authority in heaven and earth, but he is calling us to go forth under his mantle and authority so that we live in, in alignment with it. That's what makes any kind of abuse of power when we serve our own agenda, when we seek to, you know, we say we're glorifying him, but we are secretly serving ourselves. <laughs> um, 
Or, horror of horrors, when, when we use our power, our platform for Jesus, uh, our um, impetus to serve that comes from Jesus that actually harms people, that, that is horrific. That's the whole category of spiritual abuse where two words that should never be in the same sentence, the abuse and degradation of a image bearer of God and the spirit that it always comes to uplift us is put in the same category. But here is the reality. Spiritual power is dangerous. Like, like virtually all sources of power. I was talking with uh, uh, one of our elders here, Wardell Coleman, and he spent years as a Pico line worker. And you want to talk about somebody who has a healthy respect for power, talk to Wardell. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, fortunately, we don't have to have that same kind of constant awareness of power that Wardell would as a, as a lineman, right? I mean, I just, I love, and I'm, I'm more aware of how much I love power in terms of electricity uh, when I go overseas to Zimbabwe where my milk is not kept cold and my shower is not kept hot. And like, I love when it's working, when it's, when it's channeled right, when I don't, you know, but there's somebody who has to jump over the live wires when they come down to make that stuff happen. And power is dangerous. And that's why Jesus, he doesn't let it go. He's holding on to it, but he is, in a sense, um, allowing us under his mantle and in alignment with him, with his purpose, with his love for people, with his complete resistance to the stubborn resources of egocentricity, to send us out to live a different narrative. Do you know, it is possible through the spirit of Jesus Christ, through coming to him for cleansing, through being ransomed, that's what he talks about. He says that he came to give his life as a ransom because the original mission that God had for your life and mine has been hijacked. And that mission was one of self-giving our lives so that we could be part of glorifying God. That's that's the greatest purpose. And he, and he, he... calls us to this. And so he told the disciples that they were assembled, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. But even before he released that power to them, he called them to a 10-day prayer meeting in the upper room. And uh, it kind of pared down the three and a half years of Christ. You know, he, he really just had 120 takers. That's a fairly small audience for a son of God who could, you know, who did at least three resurrections that we know of, who could feed 5,000. It's like, there, there were 120 people who were serious enough to just wait on the Lord for 10 days. And he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That it, that it was only those people of that kind of prayerfulness who were, who were safely enough cleansed from their stubborn, selfish agenda. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by this book on when narcissism comes to church. Um, he says, a narcissist is not some irredeemable psychological category, although people can get very encased in that. He says, a narcissist is someone who you see when you look in a mirror. That's what he says. And so he says, the goal of our life in Christ through the cross, he says, he puts it this way, he says, be the best narcissist you can be. That means one that is continually full of self-distrust and God-trust. And I'm not saying we wallow in this. Uh, For every one look, we really look at ourselves. Let's take 10 looks at how great Jesus is and be mobilized in that. But this this is real. Every gift can be polluted by this. Um, I almost hesitate to tell this story because it's it's not a true story about Jesus, but it's an apocryphal story. You know what an apocryphal story was? People wrote up legends and stuff. But it sounds so close to the nature of Jesus. So I don't know whether you've heard this story before, but the disciples and Jesus were out and he told them to pick up a rock uh, and to carry it for him. He says, this is your object lesson today. Pick up a rock and carry it for me. And so you can imagine the apostles, like some picked up smaller rocks saying, well, he didn't say what size of rock. Some picked up larger rocks. Peter's lugging this huge rock on his shoulders, carrying it around, right? And um, as, the, uh, as, as the day um, ends, he says, throw it in the water. And he's like, hey, Peter's like, hey, I mean, we just all throw it in the water? 
Like, I thought you were gonna turn that thing to bread or something, and like, we would all get to taste the reward of what we were doing. He said, no, throw it in the water. He goes, throw it in the water. He goes, yeah, and Jesus says, who were you carrying that rock for anyway? And it's so easy for us when, when it's revealed that, hey, the whole end of what we're doing is simply for him, uh, for his glory, not ours. It can reveal the narrative that gets in our heart. We have to really, really work to be completely Jesus-oriented, but it is, it is the safe space for our life. And when we see someone who's truly not stuck on a track that is about them, it, it's really astounding. It's why when we you know, try to do something really good, really, really generous, and then try to absolutely not tell anybody else about it. <laughs> have you ever done that? <laughs> Um, Andy Crouch has written a book um, on, it's called Playing God, and it's about redeeming power also. Uh, and uh, he describes, it, I think he's, he's one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers. I recommend virtually everything I've read by him just strikes deeply with me. And uh, he goes around speaking to a lot of groups, and he says one of the things that he had to start doing to try to, you know, he leaves his family with young children, and he's, you know, meets new friends who honor him at the airport, who bring him, you know, the, the best bottled water, the $7 kind, and who take him out to nice restaurants, and there's his wife at home doing the dishes and ma managing all these things. And he said to keep that from intoxicating him, he developed this discipline of before he leaves for one of these trips where he's a speaker, he washes all the dishes, the dishes of that day, sometimes the dishes of the prior week, but he wants to leave that sink clean. And as he tells that story, he says, and now that I've told you that story so that you think more highly of me, I've got to go find something else I do to mortify that stubborn impulse to make me the center of the story. So true. I, I, I heard a cool thing that a friend of mine did. They said they were through the uh, checker line. They picked this up from somebody at the Giant, and they saw that the checker was harassed uh, and just, you know, unappreciated. And so they said, um, I'm trying to buy a, a really good candy bar, and I can't figure out what kind to buy. What's your favorite? And the checker says, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, Zagnut or, uh, <laughs> or whatever. And so they grab the biggest king-size candy bar of that variety they can get, and then as they leave, they say, this is for you. And they say when they do that, like, it like everybody in the line, it doesn't just affect the cashier. <laughs> Puts their trajectory on another, uh, on another realm for like $3, you know? But everybody in the line is like, I never thought of living that way. <laughs> Where you pass that on. And, and so this is, this is Jesus' narrative. And, and they come to him and say, do for us whatever you ask. Jesus says, what do you, what do you want me to do? And they say, we want to sit on your right and your left in glory. And Jesus' uh, response to them is, first of all, you don't know what you're asking. And he does two things. He says, can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And do you know in the, in the Gospels, Jesus refers to his, to his suffering on the cross as a baptism. He says that he longs to be baptized. He longs for that to be completed. He longs to go under the deluge of God's justice so that he can completely remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. And, and his disciples think they can do it. <laughs> they say, we can Jesus tells him, yeah, you, you are going to come into the fellowship of my sufferings, not for other people's forgiveness of sins, but so that this message, this incredible message of life in my name spreads. But he says, to sit on my right or left is to give it for those to whom it has been prepared. And then I love verse 41. Verse 41 says, when the other 10 disciples heard about this. They became indignant with James and John. And I think it's because they're saying, oh darn, I'm sorry, I didn't think of that request. <laughs> they're mad that they didn't think of it first. And it was here where Jesus called them together, verse 42. And he says that the kind of leadership that is going to be the kind of 
pipeline that can convey the incredible message of the gospel that lifts up the lowly and the downcast is going to have to be completely different than all of the other forms of leadership, all of the other demonstrations of authority and governance on the earth. And he he puts it in broad respect in verse 42. He says, you know, the Gentiles lord it over them. High officials exercise authority, coercion, power, because I say so, under force of um, either fear of consequence or desire to please and, and fit into a pleasing line. And Jesus says, I don't want any of those other motives. I want the power of the governance I have to come from hearts that are born in love. How, how we need to do this. How, how we need to watch that that storyline. Caitlin Beatty has written a book on Christian celebrity, and she describes as a teenager that she discovered that what she was being asked to do as a teen who had made a new commitment to Jesus Christ was to not get rid of the category of secular celebrity, but to swap out her non-Christian celebrities for Christian celebrities. (laughs) She said what she learned was that the whole celebrity culture was a feature, not a bug, of the contemporary evangelical movement. So she says, famous Christians started to be fixtures of my adolescence. She says, I was asked to get rid of my, you know, unwholesome musicians and speakers and authors, but to replace them uh, with another group who would become my celebrities. And so I purchased their albums, their books, I heard their messages, and, and we learned that we needed to stop filling our minds with American Pie and Britney Spears, but instead of questioning the whole mainstream celebrity culture, we had just exchanged it and mimicked it. <laughs> Secular culture had its celebrities, so did we. And they just had different things they were in angst about. <laughs> but it was still the same kind of thing. And she says, the problem with that is that in the church, what's happened, and I think this is basically an underbelly to the storyline of so many of the scandals that have come into the church, is that we reached as Christians, we we saw the world carrying away youth, we saw the world carrying away affection, so we decided instead of simply reaching for the power and the preeminence of Jesus and the force of his word and prayer and lives um, quietly but profoundly devoted to him, we reached for the tool of celebrity and we found out that celebrity is never a tool at all. That celebrity will always have more power over the user than the user has over it. Celebrity turns out to be a wild animal, cunning, slippery, insidious, and the wild animal of celebrity has been tearing up the church of the house of God. That kind of narrative, that one kind of gift is more important than the other, that somebody who has the microphone has a kind of authority that others don't have or should be given attention. And this is what Jesus says, the, the false celebrities, the celebrities of the world, they, they lord it over you. They rule by coercion, by power, by either fear of consequences of being on the wrong side or, or, or by the appeal of saying, if you want to be on the inside, this is, this is what you do, but there's a kind of, of coercion. I, I love what the Apostle Paul says. This is one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. He says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. I think there were the false apostles who were doing flashy things, uh, and they were manipulating people by lots of glitz and glamour and pizzazz, and Paul said, we've renounced those things. In fact, he was criticized by the church at Corinth because he was not particularly impressive. He didn't come with a big, a big dramatic rollout of anything. So he says, we've, we've renounced all that because we, we realized that what we use for, for people to be, um, to be under the force of truth, they've got to be won by truth. And so he writes this, he says, our ministry is by the manifestation of the truth of God to each person's conscience. He says, we manifest God by manifesting the truth of God to each person's conscience in the sight of God. And so he wants God's kingdom to come, again, like, like, the words of the hymn, Lead on, O King Eternal, he says, not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, his heavenly kingdom comes. It's, it's in that, that more basic way. And what I see in this passage is that Jesus knew that these apostles were not gonna be ready to be unleashed on the world until he actually 
intervened as the ransom on the cross, that only the cross can actually scrub our self-serving reflexes out of us. Only coming under the power of the cross can scrub that out of us. And that when we identify with that, it, it, it causes us to be able to adhere to a new narrative. Uh, you talk about dehumanizing uses of authority. They are all over the world. Uh, one of the things we noticed in Zimbabwe, um, I noticed when I went there in, in 1984, when I was in college, is that um, the picture of the president was required to be in every institution, every business, every place. His image, his image, his image was usurping, you know, space in every single place because he wanted that to be the narrative. And there was a narrative of fear. And if people didn't like what was going on and some of the atrocities that were being sponsored by him, they were afraid to actually speak about it because there was a sense of omnipresence that was beaming forth. And all over the world, it seems like in, in the past um, five to 10 years, authoritarian power has taken off. And Jesus says that is what you should expect from the Gentiles. But what is sad is in the storyline of the church, we have seen this. And Andy Crouch says this. He says that when that storyline uh, is, re is reversed, he writes that there are 21 million people in the world right now who are enslaved, if you can imagine that. By enslaved, what he means is children who are trafficked and children who are um, working in garment factories in India and other places. And by enslaved, it means that they don't get paid and they cannot leave. House servants in Kuwait and other places in the Arab world, um, People in Africa who leave because they can't put food on the table uh, and they take these positions and then they find that they will never be allowed to leave. Uh, people who are enforcing the authority of slaveholders. And Crouch mentions there's an organization called International Justice Mission. Uh, and he mentions a fellow named Jay Kamar in uh, the head of World Vision in India. And he actually took him to places where Children are liberating children, but it's not only uh, the liberation of people from childhood slavery and childhood trafficking, but he says the goal of international justice ministry is also to liberate those who are enslaving them. Because when someone would call the police and say, we've got child laborers here, uh, they are being beaten and punished, you know what the police generally did? They would come and they would enforce the beatings and punishment and intimidation of those children. The whole police uh, had been corrupt, and what International Justice Mission found is they said about 15%, 15% of the police are corrupt and receiving bribes. He said another 15% are incorruptible. They will not receive a bribe. They stand in integrity. And so you've got 15% corrupt, 15% incorruptible. What stands in the middle? 70% who are not the overlords but they are the passive bystanders. And it says the task of international justice mission is to begin to inspire that middle to get to a tipping point where they say, no, we will not stand for this being done on our watch. 70% that were not profiting and were not participating, but were neutral and they saw what was going on, but they kind of closed their eyes to it. They didn't want to enter into it. Uh, and so they did nothing. They were the bystanders unless it impacted them. That, that, that is so like the prophetic call of Jesus that I think was, at least in the most prophetic way in our recent history taken up by Martin Luther King where he wrote in, from his letter in the Birmingham jail, he says, um, the th he says, I have reached the regrettable conclusion that the great stumbling block in this stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but it is the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Wait for a more convenient season. <laughs> and he writes this, he says, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will 
And he says, lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Why do I share those, that narrative with you? Because I believe the proof as to whether we are simply playing church and we are going along with the narrative, but we are kidding ourselves about it really being, church is just a religious cushion, is whether we get involved in those areas and are willing to do something that cost us. You've probably heard it said, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Have you heard that said? Lord Acton's dictum. Andy Crouch says that if we embrace that total, completely as Christians, it's a cop-out. Because Jesus didn't say that power always corrupts. If that were true, then none of us would be mobilized to do anything. And what Andy Crouch says is he says that it's demonstrably false that absolute power corrupts absolutely because there would probably not be any of us alive in this room if that were true. Because at one point in our lives, all of us, were completely powerless or completely under the power of someone else when we were infants. There, there's no other living thing, there's no other species that is born uh, so helpless like a human being. And so we were completely dependent upon parents to use the power, power they had as to whether we were fed, changed, uh, whether we were cared for and nurtured. And so what made the difference in that power, it was because that power, that incredible power was completely flavored uh, by self-giving love. Self-giving love redeems power and that's why Jesus is saying, I have come to ransom, I've come to pour myself out as an absolute ransom. When our kids were growing up, we uh, started them reading the Harry Potter series and we, heard controversy was like, where is this author gonna go with that whole series, right? And so we're holding our breath like, well, if she goes in a really bad place, then, uh, you know, we'll have to change the narrative. But as the narrative went on, what you found is that uh, incredible, blazing Christian truths and values were nestled into the book and the series. And there's no place that comes out more than in the, I think it's the next to last volume where um, Harry Potter is uh, in the company of Dumbledore and he's faced with the reality that he is going to be the one who's going to have to slay he who should not be named, Voldemort. And if you know this narrative or you've seen the movies or the books, this, this narrative comes and Harry comes complaining to Dumbledore, the chief wizard, that he's got to face Voldemort, who is more powerful. And he says, I don't have his spells. I don't have his ability. I don't have his power. And Dumbledore says this, but, um, but he says, well, you have a power that Voldemort has never had. You have a power that evil cannot even understand. Uh, you have the power of self-sacrificial love and even the love that is the scar on your forehead is there because of that you received a mark of your mother's intervening sacrificial love from the beginning. And I think while we certainly don't want to promote the wizardry world of Harry Potter, boy, if we could promote that narrative, that narrative of redemptive and powerful love, man, that's about as powerful as Lord of the Rings fiction. And what Jesus concludes this whole announcement with is the announcement that self-centered, narcissistic hearts, that in the announcement of the cross, I mean, when you get James and John's announcement, I mean, Jesus has just announced he's gonna die. It's kind of like, like me announcing, hey, I'm, I'm having heart problems. Somebody better, uh, you know, drive me to the hospital. And, and my two friends saying, who gets to ride shotgun? Who, you know, who gets to, you know, take this? It's like, it's so self-centered. Jesus, in the face of that, in the face of that poison, says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. To, to speak of the cross as the one place where this agenda can truly be confronted and demolished and displaced by the one beauty and the one narrative worth giving our life to, uh, the narrative to living in the stead of Christ. And if being a slave of God was sufficient for uh, the incredible life of Jesus, how is that not the greatest privilege? How is it not part of the good news? If the good news is if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ, your sins of the past, present, and future are completely forgiven. But you know what else? 
And in the meantime, until you meet him, you get to serve him. You get to be his disciple. You get to speak, act, live, channel your resources so that it serves his great narrative. You get to live so much according to this narrative. And here's one of the tests. When you live according to this narrative, you will live very near people who are not living this narrative. It will cause you not to sequester yourself like on a holy hill in a monastery. It'll cause you to go toward people who don't share your conviction. And you know what's useful about that is that it's a good... It's a good way to test yourself because when you are living life in this way, when you start to act on faith, people who do not share your passion and your understanding of this, they will not get you. They, they will not understand you. Our world finds it very easy to understand people who are all about themselves. It's easy to understand people who are about power, money, influence, sex, pleasure, but if you really are pouring yourself out for Jesus in this way, lifting him up, lifting others up, people won't get you. And you know what the beautiful thing about that is? They will start to get him. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 14 is what I want to close with. And it talks about dead works and dead service. And he says this, but now how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? This is the narrative that cleanses us from dead do-goodism <laughs> to live out a narrative to serve the living and the true God. That's the one whose mantle that we follow. Um, that's the narrative that Jesus has made possible by ransoming, ransoming us from all the other things that would hijack our energies. And when we give ourselves to that together as one body, church becomes an exciting place. The Christian life becomes full of the kind of daily romance of how are we going to how are we gonna play this out? How are we gonna have conversations that are not about me, that are not reinforcing the flow and the agenda, but are about the one who has given himself for us and loved us perfectly? Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for the narrative that you enable us to live by his grace. And we pray now, Lord, in the new narrative of CLC in part, Lord, a narrative that is blessed by a new group who are saying yes to the mantle of service. We pray for you to endow us all and draw us to nothing else, nothing less than this calling to be Christ's servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to call up before our close very significant time. And I'm going to ask uh, if all of our elders would come forth, but I'd like uh, LK if you'll come stand here, uh, Crystal Leff uh, and Brooke Seeger. Uh, they are our departing elders, and I'd like our new elders. And by the way, Scott DeHart is unfortunately at home ill, so he's, I'm sure, watching, but if uh, Mindy Myers and Seth McNaughton would come forward. And we are aware that, again, the church cannot go forward apart from a body of elders who the beauty of elder leadership is elders arise from the grassroots of the congregation. They arise because they are noted um, as those whose lives are marked by the character qualities of Christ. Uh, those qualities are marked out in 1 Timothy 3, in 1 Peter 5, in Titus 1. Uh, but they are qualities not of perfection, but of a threshold of service to the Lord. And I want to first of all just honor our departing elders with some words from some of your peers and those who've received your ministry. Um, so we have all, all of you here. Where's, let's see, Brooke, LK, and Crystal. There are three right here. So Brooke, your peers say, Brooke, you are always insightful. You take the time to understand or question any issues we have before us, and you demonstrate your desire to follow as the Lord leads. As likely the youngest of the elders, certainly this last class, it is truly great how you hung in there when it had been easy to move on. Crystal, 
You've served many times before on this session, and this term uh, may have been the most challenging of any term. And we, your fellow elders, have witnessed your strength and faith in depending upon the Lord to bring you through serious health concerns and yet still be there, confronting issues the church was dealing with. Crystal, your generous, caring, thoughtful, and committed spirit has made a great impact on helping us get to the better place we're at now. Okay, your many years of experience serving on session helped immensely while leading during the transition period for uh, new staff and pastor. Okay, your commitment to make the study of God's word primary and to provide books and periodicals that flesh that out for our team and the state of churches gave all of us who came into contact with you an opportunity to listen and learn. Thank you. Others said, Crystal, I'm so grateful for your faithful service. It's been a difficult season, but especially so for session. And as we bore some of that burden, um, we appreciated your abiding faith, wise, trustworthy insights, your calm and uncomplaining spirit, um, deeply rooted in and watered by your ardent, steadfast prayer life. You have left an example that inspire and challenge us. Brooke, I expect that three years ago, uh, you did not know all that awaited you as an elder at CLC. But I want you to know how much we admire the grace, dedication, and perseverance with which you've carried out your responsibilities. It's been a privilege to serve alongside you and get to know you and to see your faithfulness and fresh perspective along with wisdom, quiet strength, and active concern for the church. And LK, Again, thank you for your willingness to come out of retirement for such a time as this. Your wise, capable leadership has been reassuring to the entire body of Christ. Your obvious love for Jesus and CLC has provided a stabilizing influence on the elders and church staff in a difficult season, and it has been a joy to serve you. And so we would all say, um, we thank you for your service. And we're praying God's blessing upon you also uh, as now you're, you're in the trenches as elders who've served. And so you have a unique way of supporting and advancing uh, the role of leadership of Christ in our church. Um, but you don't have to go to any meetings. Always welcome. And then finally, I, I just love this. Um, one elder had the brilliance of brevity and said this. Um, Brooke, you're staff aware. Crystal, your kid's aware. LK, you're a sage <laughs> who brings the wisdom of God. And so um, I think it's appropriate because they don't have any of this in themselves by nature, but it is God. Let's, let's give praise to God for how these individuals have served. And so now, um, do we, the microphones. So some elders are gonna address them, and I'm gonna invite you to stand here and address them because um, these are our three. Um, Scott's gonna have to be in person at some point, how he didn't want it, but, but we're gonna assume he's saying yes to these because we already talked to him, uh, and he's gonna do it again in front of us. Uh, but it, these commitments of elders um, our commitments that they make before God, a vow is something, a promise you make before God and before others, and you seek to be held to that commitment. And so, uh, first, if Elder Bill Hostetter would read the first two. And if you would answer by saying, I do. Seth and Mindy, do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you believe, do you boldly declare Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? and acknowledge him, Lord of all, and head of the church. Do you believe in the scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testament to be the word of God and inspired by the Holy Spirit, the unique witness to Jesus Christ and the authority of a Christian faith and life? Mindy and Seth, will you receive, adopt, and be bound by the essential tenets of ECO as a reliable exposition of what Scripture teaches us to do and to believe. And will you be guided by them in your life and your ministry? Relying on the Holy
Holy Spirit, do you humbly submit to God's call on your life, committing yourself to God's mission, and fulfilling your ministry in obedience to Jesus Christ, under the authority of Scripture, and guided by our confessions. Will you be governed by ethical policy and discipline? And will you be accountable to your fellow elders, deacons, pastors, as you lead? Do you promise to be faithful in maintaining the truth of the gospel, peace, unity, purity of the church? Will you pray for and seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? Will you be a faithful elder, watching over the people in their worship, nurture, and service to God? And then we have a question administered to you, uh, who are covenant partners of CLC. If you call CLC your home, uh, this question is addressed to you. Do we, the covenant partners of this congregation, accept Mindy Myers, Seth McNaughton, and Scott DeHart, elders chosen by God through the voice of this congregation, to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ, according to the word of God and the constitution of ego? We do. Do we agree to pray for them, to encourage them, to respect their decisions, and to follow as they guide us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is the head of the church? We do. Now I'd like to invite any who are here who have served as elders. If you've served the term as elder in this church or others, you're invited to come as we're going to lay hands upon Mindy and Seth and set them apart. So please do come forward and join us, and we're going to enter into a season of prayer. So um, this also goes, uh, and this is a special moment that um, Dave, Mindy's father, is here, and he serves as an elder at White Clay. He's able to join us too. So praise God for that generational work of the Spirit. Um, if you would kneel, and you will feel the weight on your backs, I think. <laughs> but let's surround them and lay hands on them. And um, LK will begin our praying, and we will pass the mic, but invite you to join in the prayer for this new chapter of service by these servants. Heavenly Father, I particularly thank you for this church body and the blessing that it has been to all of us. I would ask that you would put your Holy Spirit on this commissioning service and Lord we don't know what the next three years will bring you do and knowing that you chose Scott and Seth and Mindy to join with the leadership team of this church to lead the church body in a way uh, that pleases you and as we sang in the song uh, may they hear the Holy Spirit and may they speak the words of the Holy Spirit not their own desires so much uh, so as to edify this body and bring you the glory that you so rightfully deserve in his name. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation can um, pray daily for these new incoming elders and all the leaders of the CLC, a hedge of protection over the enemy, that um, they will feel your presence Lord, we are so grateful for their submission to your will and taking up this calling. Lord, please bless them with wisdom and discernment. And we are so thankful for their families and the support and as, as they sacrifice also alongside in their service. Uh, please bless them, Lord, going in and going out. And we do. We pray for protection around each elder and their families as they serve our families.
Gracious God, hear the individual prayers that each congregation member, each covenant member would make for this team. Lord, we we would want to humble ourselves before your throne and know that we need great grace if we are to do things in the power of the Spirit and that will have enduring impact for your name. Make this body, this community, um, not only the elders but who are serving in governance, but the entire body. Um, one constant and seamless reminder, both by words and deeds, that what we are trying to live out is not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. It is to live for him. And may you keep us faithful by your grace to that blessed way of life. We are so thankful that you have saved us from a futile way of life and you have turned us away from the idols of the world to serve you, the living and true God. What a glorious way to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. It's my privilege, and as much as you have taken these vows and commitments, Mindy and Seth, and answered affirmatively to the commitments of an elder, uh, it's my privilege and honor to welcome you to the ministry of elders in Christ Church. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. So good. What a team. What a wonderful display of strength. Uh, let's now uh, give our praise to God in our closing song. We invite you all as a church to stand as we sing in uh, celebration um, of a, a great God who saves. Amen. Jesus, you 
shed your blood for salvation. You broke the curse for our freedom. Oh, Jesus, you alone. You rose from dead with the and prayer ministry team if some of them would like to come forward to the front on the, my right and left they're available to pray if you came in here with a burden we don't want you to leave with that untouched and lifted if you have been uh, spurred to recommit your life to Christ or to come for the first time they would love to pray with you so if they would uh, come forward now uh, we have a reception encourage you to linger for it uh, then we'll gather for those who'd like for some Q&A uh, right in this middle section in about 10 minutes uh, but now lift up your hearts one more thing Oh, there's, and the hospitality team is 221, not big yellow mug. Just note that. Uh, and hope to see you all at the State of the Church meeting uh, where we'll have more time together. So lift up your hearts and receive this benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.